My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrets, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the latest BRICS and G20 summits through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this particular topic today? Why are we speaking about the BRICS and the G20 summit? Hello, Dario. As you will, I'm sure, uh, discuss in the fact sheet, and we will discuss afterwards as well, the BRICS and the G20 are two formats that are going to be very influential in the next uh, 50 years or so in shaping the new world order. We are, we are witnessing life, a change of the guard, if you like, about who dominates uh, international relations, how international relations are shaped, who um, determines the direction of our globe. And um, the BRICS has been an attempt by the Global South to actually take over the baton from the West. And the G20, in some ways, is a way for the West to try to still keep control over those kinds of dynamics. And so these two uh, organizations are now in the news because of uh, related reasons. And it's a really good opportunity for us to discuss what this, this new international order looks like and what kind of institutions exist to shape that order. And what are the facts? BRICS is a grouping of the world economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, formed by the 2010 addition of South Africa uh, to the predecessor BRIC. The BRICS nations uh, encompass about 27 of the world's land surface and 42% of the global population. During the latest summit in August, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates were invited to join the bloc. Full membership will take effect on January 1st, 2024. The Group of 20, or G20, is a forum for international economic cooperation. It works to address major issues related to the global economy, such as international financial stability, climate change mitigation, and sustainable development. At the G20 summit in India last weekend, Chinese President Xi did not attend. What is the bubble? So when we're speaking about these two organizations, uh, let's first talk a little bit more about what they actually are, just to give our listeners who might not uh, know them in detail uh, a bit more information. Uh, so let's start with the G20, just because uh, I just went over this. Um, I mean, they were established in 1999, uh, but they kind of truly came into effect uh, during the, the 2009, 2010, 2011 financial crisis. And the, the countries are simply the, the 20, or at that time, the 20 largest economies, right? So the United States, obviously, China is involved, Russia is involved, Saudi Arabia, but also Italy uh, and others. And it's kind of, I mean, if we want to summarize it that way, it's supposed to be a non-Western focused G7, right? Where the G7 used to be the seven biggest economies in the world. Um, and I know mostly Western, so it's Japan, Italy, Canada, United States, Germany, uh, France, and England. Um, and the G20 was supposed to be like an update of that um, to also include non-Western countries. Exactly right. And the thing is that obviously we've got many, many forums in the world. That makes a lot of sense. We've got 195 countries, depending on whether you count the Vatican or not. Uh, we 
have the General Assembly of the UN, there are plenty of forums in the world where countries can come together, but 195 countries makes it very hard to actually do practical business. So, therefore, it makes sense to have regional cooperation, regional blocks where um, countries can discuss regional affairs, and at a global level for the more, if you like, influential powerful um, nations to also have mini blocks so that they can actually do some business without all the time having to take into account the other 170 or 80 countries that exist, right? Uh, that in itself makes a lot of sense. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is that all of this, the G7 and then the G20, are still a continuation of a Western order that was created in the 20th century. It was still a continuation of these, this, this Western bubble that we discussed throughout this podcast, where the West believes that they are the vanguard of humanity and the rest has to follow. So the G7, by definition, it mostly, almost exclusively included Western countries. Uh, therefore, it was just a Western mechanism, not without any legitimacy in the global South, within, without any representation by the up-and-coming nations, really. Uh, then they expanded it to the G20. However, that expansion was still based on a framework that is Western. It is still based on customs and traditions and a perspective that is Western. So yes, now you've got a number of non-Western countries being included in the G20 that aren't there in the G7. Wonderful. But if it still all is done in, if you like, a Western-dominated environment, then that is a problem, especially for a country like China, which is positioning itself as an alternative to this Western-dominated order from the 20th century, right? And in that sense, it doesn't make um, much sense to pretend that the G20 is global just because it includes a number of non-Western countries. And basically a counter model to this would be the BRICS, um, where you then had China, India, Russia, uh, Brazil and South Africa kind of come together. And for i mean where we're talking about the bubble here for me it's interesting that every time that they meet the west is worried it's like ah oh, you know they're trying to create their own global order and an alternative to ours and it's not rules based and democracy is missing and they're you know all the evil doers of the world are there i mean now you have lula at least right from a western perspective you have the uh, more left-leaning uh, Brazilian president before you had Bolsonaro, who obviously in the West was seen as, as a mini-Trump, right? Um, so, but every time the BRICS meet, the West is worried. And there's an emphasis on uh, on this, an alternative model, and we need to be worried, but also a continuous emphasis on the differences between these countries. So saying, you know, oh, how is it even possible that, uh, that China and India get along, right? That, that wouldn't work. Well, and you already subconsciously kind of hinted at it with the word counter, right? So uh, in the West, we assume because of our bubble that there is a standard, reasonable way of doing things. And the moment there is a movement that does things completely differently by not including the West, by somehow um, not following the patterns that we set up over the past 80 years, then we believe it is counter to us. I'm quoting you here. Then it is it is uh, a movement that is that is an opposition to us. Whereas in reality, you could also, from a Western perspective, say, look, the world is changing. Obviously, we 
cannot continue this path that we began after the Second World War of globalizing the world into our own image, because that is just no longer feasible, it's not legitimate. Of course, there's going to be organizations that don't include us, just like there are lots of Western organizations that don't include the Global South, for example. That is okay. They don't have to rival each other. They don't have to clash with each other. Let's find ways to cooperate. Let's find ways to connect. However, the West is incapable of doing that because any movement that doesn't feel quite Western enough feels like a challenge to our world order because we still want to maintain our control over the globe. And that was intensified um, in August when all these other countries were, were invited to join and even expressed interest in joining, right? So you have then the West become really uneasy over the fact that uh, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are suddenly interested in joining them, which makes that organization even more powerful. And, 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 and not just worried, but also very confused. How is it possible that one organization invites both Iran and Saudi Arabia at the same time to the table or Ethiopia and Egypt? How, how is that possible from a Western perspective, that doesn't make sense because surely Iran and Saudi Arabia are rivals, right? Surely Ethiopia and Egypt have some issues to work through first. Um, the West cannot help but have this kind of divide and conquer approach to the world. This idea that countries are continuously having to make choices on whose side they're on. Are you with the good guys? Or are you with the bad guys? And so the, the Western press was very, very confused by this. Whereas from a BRICS perspective, inviting these countries is just a continuation of a path where you say, look, in Iran exists, Saudi Arabia exists. They're both important countries. We would be happy to talk to them and to have them be part of our dynamics. We're not a moral organization that determines whether Iran or Saudi Arabia are the good guys or the bad guys. We just want to have this organization in which we can do business together. And from a Western perspective, that does make sense because we like wagging our moral finger at whoever we feel is on the wrong side of history. Right. And all of these are also kind of marked children where, um, I mean, you, you do still have this, this dominance of the dollar in the world, right? And a lot of these Western sanctions are really effective because a lot of the world trade is being done uh, through the dollar, particularly petrol. Um, so I don't think it's a surprise that Iran and Saudi Arabia, particularly Iran, right, one of those really, really marked countries by Western sanctions, is suddenly expressing interest to join an organization that in the past has theorized about, about you know, well, weaning itself off of that dependency on the dollar. And in many ways, it shows a maturity of those countries that the West can only dream of, right? A maturity in the sense of saying, look, of course, we've got issues. If we're Iran, we've got issues with Saudi Arabia. If we're Saudi Arabia, we've got issues with Iran. Of course, there is tensions. Are there tensions there? But that does not mean that we also cannot sit around the table and just talk. We don't continuously have to be in conflict with each other, especially if we've got a country like China or a country like India there that, that is sort of chairing the meeting and that has consistently been non-judgmental in these kinds of dynamics. India and China are two very powerful countries that have consistently not taken sides in these kinds of conflicts. And that is very refreshing and that allows countries such as Iran and Saudi Arabia or 
Egypt and Ethiopia to say, hey, we're happy to be part of this because we don't continuously have to justify ourselves towards the rest of the world, towards um, our negotiating partners. Unlike whenever we talk to Western countries where we have to show our colors and we have to show and virtue signal that we're on the right side. Earlier you mentioned uh, the media and how the media uh, reacts to this. So for me personally, the last two weeks, I mean, also because we were on a break from the podcast, I kind of took a bit of a break from, you know, the international news cycle and all of that. So you, I mean, I still received the headlines, but, you know, it was without that typical, well, let me actually read into it. And what is very interesting here and what both of us discovered um, kind of in the, in the lead up to this episode is that um, one of the topics that we want to address here is the fact that Chinese President Xi is not attending uh, the, the G20 summit or um, or did not. Um, and here I thought, simply based on reading headlines, that this was because, you know, because this being uh, the G20 summit is taking place in India and China and India, they've had some problems lately, right? China published this map uh, with like borders where China and India still have border conflicts. And this is probably Xi Jinping snubbing um um, President Modi, right, because of that conflict. So this is this surely must be the reason why he isn't attending. And that's basically that image I got through the media, through those headlines and all of that without properly reading into it. While now just, just uh, preparing for the episode with you, I realized that here I myself fell into the Western bubble, specifically with regards to the media, because that's not the case. No, I mean... We should probably first uh, clarify that, of course, India and China do have issues. <laughs> There's no doubt. Both geopolitically, I mean, these are two powerful nations in the same region that have geopolitical tensions. And they've got very practical regional border tensions. There's no doubt about that. And there have been, this is not just a recent thing. This has gone, I mean, this has a long historical trajectory and um, even if you look at only the last five years, you see all these incidents at the border between Chinese and Indian border guards. The Chinese and Indian media are critical of each other. All of that is absolutely true. But what is under-recognized in the Western media as well is that actually Beijing and New Delhi want to get along. They have started looking at uh, military exercises together with Russia sort of as the connecting factor um, they don't want this geopolitical tension to hamper their plans they don't see a benefit in continuing this rivalry and this is something this is a memo that the west and the western media doesn't seem to have gotten so their initial reaction because the west always likes this divide and conquer idea this this hey you're with us or you're against us the moment that there was news coming out about she not attending the summit in new delhi it was presented by the western media as aha you see india and china are rivals and this is good news for us because we really want india on our side because we feel that china is a rival to us the enemy of my enemy is my friend india please come back to us we love you um, everything is forgiven Whereas in reality, this was not a snub towards India. Everything we know, and now the Western media, by the way, are catching up to this fact. Uh, you know, late you see the Western media switching 
analysis after the first few days because all of a sudden their intuitive reaction is obviously wrong and they start analyzing the thing in depth. It is clear that Chinese and uh, Indian diplomats are actively trying to send each other flowers to say, hey, you know what, this is not against you. This is a snob against the G20. This is a thing that China, Beijing, Xi does because they feel uncomfortable with the G20 being dominated by the West and Joe Biden, the American president, being in the center of the photo op and, and, and those kinds of things. And so if this had been held anywhere else, she also would have chosen not to go. Uh, this, and it's almost unfortunate for China, for Xi, that this now happens to be in New Delhi, because it means that they have to explain to the Indians that they shouldn't take this personally. That is something that the Western media find very, very difficult to deal with, just like they have found it very difficult to deal with India's neutral stance, what they perceive as neutral stance on Ukraine. And whereas India has been very consistent in this kind of foreign policy throughout its existence, throughout its independence, it has always had this non-alignment approach to the world and it's worked very well for them. But the West cannot cope with this because surely either you're a good guy or you're a bad guy. Uh, so as I just said, again, the past few days, I've mostly been reading headlines. Um, and, you know, when you quickly scream through headlines, you can also sometimes you misunderstand uh, things or you misread things. And this happened to me. Again, in, a, in an interesting Western bubble way, where um, I read a headline about uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, going to the G20 and uh, something about, um, you know, Russia's destruction uh, and the summit. And, and, and actually, so the, the headline read, Rishi Sunak will urge India to call out Vladimir Putin's destruction at the summit. And I, in my head, thought... This surely can only be newsworthy if there's a not involved included there. So I thought he would, the, the big news would be the fact that Rishi Sunak will not urge India to call out Vladimir Putin's destruction, right? Because maybe because of a Brexit deal or something like this. You know, it's another example of this, that the fact that it is newsworthy in, in the Western world, that Rishi Sunak will go to India and urge Narendra Modi to call out Putin's destruction. It's, it's so interesting from a Western bubble, particularly from a Western bubble media perspective. Yeah, the, 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 the basic assumptions and, 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 and the basic expectations start from a very specific, narrow moral framework. And, and, and that, is, that is very damaging in some ways. And it is something that Western journalists and Western media aren't aware of it. You, you have incredibly capable, competent, knowledgeable journalists who are deeply, deeply uh, covered in this Western bias in this, in this, in this, in this bubble. And the consequence of that is that the readers, the people who consume, consume this news also get covered in that mud, right? And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, let's talk about then what the damage of all of this is. Um, because, I mean, theoretically, right, the West trying to hang on or cling on to the current world structure and being worried that, you know, there, there will be an alternative model in a multipolar world. I mean, what's the damaging part of this? Because Rishi Sunak is really just calling calling on on Modi to 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 condemn Russia. Is there is there some real damage with regards to this? Well, the fact is that the world is 
moving away from a Western dominated order. That's just a fact. Um, that is something that, first of all, the West doesn't recognize sufficiently. Um, but the rest of the world knows this. The rest of the world is actively working towards this. And the damage is that the West, sticking to its guns, desperately trying to hang on to this world order that they created over the past 80 or 90 years, are actually going to miss out on really influential and interesting dynamics. And worse, not just that they're isolating themselves from those dynamics, which they're doing by, by feeling that the BRICs somehow are a rival and, and that if you don't call out Russia, then you're sort of on the other side and we don't want to work with you because there's something inherently wrong with you. It's the, the damage is not just that then the West isolates itself from those ongoing dynamics that are happening either way, whether the West wants it or not, but also that the West creates an antagonistic world where this either you're with us or against us continues to be a, mod, a theme in international relations, where especially smaller countries are kind of forced to choose sides. And that creates a very unstable and very unproductive 21st century. The ideal scenario would be that the West says, look, we have to accept that the global South, led by a number of countries, Brazil, South Africa, Nigeria, China, India, etc., are now gaining and, 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 and taking their rightful place in the pantheon of influential states. This leads to a world order that is different. Let's make it a cooperative world order. Let's be part of these dynamics. Let's make sure that we can actually um, join that. In, but by not having that attitude, by sticking to its guns, the West creates instability. It creates factionalism, it creates rivalry, and that is incredibly destructive. So damage number one, the West isolates itself and as a result becomes less and less uh, part of very positive and very interesting dynamics worldwide. Secondly, they destabilize the world by making it an us versus them narrative. Very, very much so in that sense. And what what is interesting here is... Um another piece of news uh, that came out so right after the summit when there was this question on whether Indonesia would join the BRICS as well and then they said oh you know we prefer not to join right now and it was very clear uh, they would prefer to work with the West the fact that the fact that they have to choose right that a country feels like okay let's see what what you know association can I can I get more out of that that's also destructive for for you know everyone else and and I, I feel like it's so easy to see based on this why the rest of the world is fed up with the West. It's completely obvious. And even because in the run-up to this this episode, um, we talked a little bit about um, some statements from politicians and all that. And you see, whenever a politician in the West, for example, says tries to be knowledgeable and understanding of this issue and says, okay, no, um, the world is changing and it's important for us to shape the, the new world order. That already is very concerning, right? The idea that the West thinks that they can still shape the world order. Everyone outside of the West hears the past 400 years coming by again, where the, the West did nothing but shape the world order through colonialism and then through democratization and creating an international system that is very much based on Western values and all that. 
maybe it is time for the West not to ask, demand that loyalty from Indonesia or anyone else, not to want to always be the leader and the, the shaper of world dynamics, but instead say, look, these dynamics are happening. Let us join it as partners. Let us work together rather than trying to make India and China a little bit more like us. Let's just be genuinely cooperating to make the world a better place. Or also just for very selfish reasons, the fact that you always demand from other countries to choose colors. And so, so let's focus on India here. You know, a historically non-aligned country. Um, and you, you always ask them to, to choose sides and to do that instead of taking advantage of the fact that you have a country that's close to you, but also close to another side. So let's say Russia in this case for potential negotiations. But no, this is always kind of pushed away right because there's no interest in negotiations first of all because there has to be a clear winner it has to be ukraine slash the west and this this attitude and here i'm speaking very much from a german perspective it also hurts with regards to germany right because germany in itself could be a country in the middle right it uh, because of its history because of uh, the fact that germany was divided you know between the united states the united kingdom france and russia so you have both like alliances basically on there but no you germany had to choose a side it very much went into away from russia into full-on western side and now you you're trying to do the same to india i feel like that you're missing out there on a lot of potential to to kind of just bring the world maybe a bit closer together and also to foster understanding instead of the opposite we've, we've discussed this in the past that it is one of it's heartbreaking to see one of my the big frustrations about the past couple of years to see Germany adopting sort of the narrative of its Western partners rather than the Western partners adopting the narrative of Germany. Because of the Western world, Germany is one of the least biased countries because of its historical trauma that we've also discussed. Uh, now, least biased doesn't say much in a Western bubble, you know, in the land of the blind, one eye is king, right? So it's it's not necessarily that impressive, but Germany, because of its past, has had a much more cooperative stance on these kinds of issues. We, I would have hoped that the rest of the world learned from the German foreign policy or the Western world would have learned from that German foreign policy approach. Instead, now Germany is copying the rest. And that's a real, real tragedy. It is not the way forward. It is not the way to go. Um, and, and I hope that there will at some point be a realization of this. And what now? So what is the way forward? Um, the rest of the world is going to do their own thing. You see this with the BRICS. It, it doesn't seem like that anyone is intimidated by the West whacking their finger at these nations. Um, so it seems like the West, the rest of the world is doing their own thing. You know, we, we are now moving into a multipolar world where also I hope we can bury this entire Cold War, you know, a new Cold War talk between the West and China. There's There will be multiple polars in the world. You have Brazil, you have South Africa, Nigeria, Indonesia, India, China maybe Russia, um, but you, you also have Europe and the United States. Um, but what will what will the West do um, in the future? That is that is exactly the question, right? So I, the sensible thing to do would be first to go through an introspective process and to understand that whenever they use a type of language that suggests rivalry or that suggests 
shaping the world in a Western image. They conjure up darkness from the past and they should really stop doing that. Um, stop pretending that the West are the ones who are going to tell the rest of the world how what the future looks like. Instead, turn yourself as a Western nation into a genuine partner of the global South. Genuine partner doesn't mean supporting them to become like you, but actually together work towards common goals, right? That is partnership. That would be the ideal scenario for with respect to the future. Now, I'm afraid that at least in the foreseeable future, the West doesn't do this because it requires them to go through a deep psychological process. We in the West are still completely covered in our own bubble. And in order to understand, truly understand the changes that are happening in the world and the future that humanity is heading towards, the first step is realization towards yourself about your own behavior and your own past and your own present. And that is a that is a process that is not very visible at the moment. If we talk about colonization or the past, it's in highly emotional, moral terms. It is not in analytical terms of understanding. It is not in awareness terms. It is very much about, you know, us being critical of, of certain atrocities that we committed in the past rather than analyzing who we were and who we are. And we need to do that in order to position ourselves as a Western world uh, in a future where we are no longer ruling the roost. And that's probably a very good thing for humanity and in which we can be productive partners or we can be partners that divide the world longer than necessary. I assume this is going to, I mean, this process is going to kick in once the West is losing even more geopolitical power and political power in particular. Because one of the, uh, one, uh, like an interesting moment I had uh, a few weeks ago is when I attended like a, uh, yeah, like a, an, an energy summit uh, to say, I also got uh, in touch with a lot of people from the business community, uh, especially working internationally, right? Working for energy companies internationally. And I actually anticipated that they would also be very much stuck within the Western bubble. Um, right, so we were talking about you know global gas supplies and 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 in all different directions, and I was surprised to see that compared to the political world that I usually are am involved in, you know, in the IR world, that a lot of them were very critical of Western behavior in the past, and very much I assume because they have that direct confrontation with partners, and because the West is economically no longer the strongest might out there, is that they have genuine conversations with others and that they are listening to these frustrations from the rest of the world, right, from the global south, where then suddenly there's, there's this thing of, oh, uh, during last year's cold winter when the Europeans were struggling to, to obtain gas, that they bought LNG gas wherever on the world market, stealing it from emerging economies, right, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and a lot of these business, uh, you know, well, people from the business world seem to be a lot more aware of the damage the West had done in the past and how critical the rest of the world looks towards us. So I assume that this process might be like you might be able to start this process once the West is losing a bit more of its geopolitical power. And then there can be an actual conversation happening on on, on maybe a diplomatic level on this exchange and to actually for the first time perceive these frustrations of the rest of the world because uh, i don't know if if these i would say transactionally thinking business people 
can do that, then I would hope that for sure the political class at some point can do that as well, despite the fact that I think that they are very much like the, for, for the, you know, for the geopolitical students of this world and also the geopolitical makers, I think that they are even more in the Western bubble than the rest of society. That it's a really interesting observation that, and it, it makes perfect sense that if you're the business world, you're on the forefront of those changes. You don't care about historical narratives. You just want to invest in India or China or Saudi Arabia or wherever. And once you do that, you actually need to overcome obstacles that your society has created, right? If you're European or North American, you actually have to overcome biases and all that. And if you don't overcome these biases, you're going to lose your investment. You're going to be bad at your job. So that's a really interesting observation that the business world is aware of this almost naturally without having deep internal philosophical debates, but naturally aware of the need to pop out of this bubble rather than, um, you know, staying in and wagging the finger because it just doesn't work in practice. With respect to uh, policymakers, it unfortunately goes a little bit beyond that. You're absolutely right what you say about policymakers, but unfortunately, this is still the media and therefore the people who consume the media and who are not at the forefront of that business world dynamic who just sit at home, go, you know, go to work, come back and they read about bricks they read about the g20 and they stay within that bubble so unfortunately the largest segments of our societies are still shielded from the reality of the rest of the world one one quote uh, that really stuck to me during that conference uh, was uh, when i spoke to someone um, you know, again from an energy company and uh, he was giving the example of a country in northern africa uh, where it was about oh you know there is to go there's going to be a, a green energy project um, and then he he criticized that that particularly German attitude in in the sense where um, you know they 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 have ideas of what they want to do you know let's say they want to do solar panels and then that's the moment when the Germans come in and tell them oh no 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 you shouldn't do it like this you should build wind farms because they are much more efficient and because of that and now you need this and this and, and then he said no if a country tells you we want to do a project you just deliver you know you just give them what they want it's a transaction it's a business sense why do the germans always believe that they know everything better than the rest especially in their countries and i thought that was very nice you know i, I almost like if, if if that hadn't been a conversation i think this would have been a nice quote to end this episode but this was a german saying that about germany that is so typical i mean it, it's like whenever in, in at university i say i i praise germany for the way that it has processed its past with respect to the second world war there's always a german student who raises their hand and say uh, no but it's only with respect to second world war but we're really bad at understanding the rest of our history you know there is something deeply beautiful in germans criticizing themselves and i wish that more countries would do that dario well, this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the BRICS and the G20 Summit. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I took a quote this time from the great, mighty Bob Dylan, who is tragically being ignored by your generation, which I think is one of the great crimes of the 21st century. And he sang and sat and wrote, The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, the slow one now will 
later be fast. As the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last, for the times they are a-changing. <laughs>